Well, welcome, welcome. Uh, my name is Deacon Tom Burke, and I'm here with uh, Karen Barbero. Bar Barbito. Barbito. Thank you very much, Karen, for correcting me on that. We're here at uh, St. Joseph's Radio, St. Joseph's Evangeliz Evangelization Network. I have a little trouble saying that, but I hope you got that. And we're here to, to, to talk about not just your story, but how Christ has, has entered into your life and, and been that re redeeming hope. Mm -hmm. uh, I know a little bit about your story, but uh, we're just here having a, having a cup of coffee or a cup of water. And uh, so how did you come to be with me here today? It was a long journey. And uh, would, you, would you help me out with well, what, what your early years were like? Only because I know where we're going with this. And I hope you all stick with us because where we're going is a beautiful example and an experience of God's interaction in somebody's life. So I'm just going to tease you with that a little bit and, and ask you, Karen. So if I said to you, where was God early on? Can you tell me? Um. I didn't grow up in a religious home. My parents would go to church on occasion, um, and quite honestly, it wasn't until the pastor of the, a Baptist church that we were going to, irregularly, Christmas, Easter kind of time, that the pastor ran away with somebody in the choir, and my dad said, that's it. I don't want to be in a place where a bunch of hypocrites are sitting. And what that says to me today is that my parents didn't have a relationship with Christ. They just did what they thought they were supposed to do. Right. So I was never really exposed to the Bible, to the gospel. I didn't go to like Sunday school with other kids. They put me into youth group when I got in junior high, but we went roller skating. There was no biblical interaction. So um, I did not grow up with that foundation. I, looking back on it, I wish I had because it just would have set me up for so much greater success in the choices that I made in my life. Well, let's talk about those choices here mm -hmm. for a minute. Thank you very much because we all do make choices. And, mm -hmm. and a lot of times our choices are based on influences of other people, but they sometimes can be choices about how we perceive ourselves and how we perceive the world. How is it for you? Man, that's such a great question, and I'm so glad that you're in touch with that because we normally don't get to those places that shape us as children, and it's not to blame parents. You know, our parents did what was modeled for them or what they thought was best, but as young children, we internalize messaging in a very self-centered way. We make it be all about us, right? And so when I hear something like, you can't have seconds of this because you're chunky, I'm automatically thinking, my parents don't love me as much as they do my brothers because they didn't say that to my brothers. They separated me out from that, that I'm not ever going to be loved by anybody because if my parents point that out to me, there must be something drastically wrong with me. I'm like five, six at the time. So this isn't conscious, but this is subconscious messaging and lies that I began to believe about myself that really developed in me a sense of insecurity and lack of identity. Well, I'm so glad you talk about that because because many of us believe that that as we get older and people say, well, you, you're, you're, you're beautiful or you're, you're worthy of being loved and, and we do love you, we still filter it through our emotional memory. And you're ta if, if you don't mind me putting some context to, to, a, to a word on that, you had kind of an emotional memory of not being loved of not being worthy of love, of not being as good as your brothers. Did I hear that correctly? Yes, and that's such a good point because we do view life through a lens. And it wasn't that long ago when I made a comment to somebody that I hate getting my picture taken. I always try to get in the back row and just stick my head through because I feel like I ruined the picture. And I thought my parents were embarrassed of me because of my size. And a colleague of mine um, said to me, she goes, well, have you ever asked them? 
I said, no, I'm not going to ask my parents that. What if they tell me the truth and say yes? Well, then you'll know, right? And so she challenged me, and I asked my mom. My dad had already passed away, and I said, Mom, do, you, do I ruin the pictures, our family pictures? I mean, it, because of my size, do I ruin them? And she, this is what she said to me. She said, there was a time that I was ashamed of you, that you did ruin the pictures. And I'm like, what? How could you say that to me? You don't say stuff like that to your kid. You don't be honest with your kid like that. <laughs> you know, that's just wrong. That's wrong, that's just, right? That's a mo- not mom speak. Exactly. And so I said, well, say a little bit more about that. And she goes, well, I used to be ashamed of you, but I'm not anymore. I said, well, do I ruin pictures? And she said, yeah, you do. Again, like, what? And uh, she goes, it's because you always hide in the back row. And I, I think you should be front and center because I think you're beautiful. Now, if I had never asked my mom that question, if I had continued on with the story that I had um, developed in my head about how my parents felt about my size, it wasn't her junk. It was mine. It was the lens that I was viewing my body image through, and I projected it on everybody else. Well, so many people think, and and we're not going to dwell on this too much longer, but so many people think that that uh, I was just with somebody and similarly where they had an impression of themselves and it really didn't make any difference about what, what other people thought about them and how other people perceived mm-hmm. them and how they interacted with them. Because like you, mm-hmm. it's a joy to be around you even in this few minutes we've been together. And, and, and so, but you don't, I could say that to you all day long and you'd say, yeah, but I still remember what, what my impression about my folks. So it's so great that the Holy Spirit, just in that, few minutes that you talked with your mom yeah wanted to heal you even more what how did you feel after your mom talked to you about that well it it really helped me to understand that again it's the lens that I'm viewing myself through and I'm projecting it on other people and so now when I feel that way I have to not think about how it affects someone else outside of myself I have to really challenge that thought and is it true of who I am you know, am, am I really less than because of my body size? And I'm going to tell you, no, I'm not. I'm not any less. I'm not less worthy. I'm not unlovable. Um, but we sometimes have to replace those lies that we believe about ourselves with the truth that God says about us. Well, it's interesting that, that you say this because I can't help but get the impression that that the Holy Spirit and, and Jesus and God were trying to talk to you through your mom. And yeah. through the courage you yeah. had to talk to your mom, right? Yeah. Yeah. You, they gave you the, you're pretty spunky, I guess, but they gave <laughs> you that extra spunk, you know, to get past that, to get past that fear of, do I, am I really known that way by my folks? But if you don't mind, I'd, I'd like to go back in history a little bit mm-hmm. because you've given me a, a, a thank you very much for that gift to me, mm-hmm. a, a gift of, of, of what was going on in your early life. And what effect, what effect, having that going on with you in your early life, what effect did that have in making some of the decisions you made as a young woman? Well, I, I don't talk about this too often, but it's become really obvious to me that because of the way that I felt about myself at a really young age, I, I needed to have the attention of a boy or a man because it was my dad that I felt kind of rejected me. And I can remember, this might be tough for some of you to watch out there. This is a little bit graphic and maybe not I don't, not something that you hear often, but I was probably six years old and my brother's friends w- would have inappropriate sexual contact with me. And I liked it because it made me feel connected to something. I liked it because it was attention and I felt um, accepted in that moment. And that later led to uh, about three years of inappropriate sexual contact with my brother. 
I can't really tell you how it started or how it ended, but again, I was a willing participant at the time. It's horrible for me to say this today. I now recognize that I was being exploited as a young girl of 10 years old. I'm still trying to understand that whole victim role of it all. Um, but it just led to that kind of interactions with men because I didn't feel like my dad loved me. Yeah, yeah. so carrying that, and, and I'm gonna put a word on it, and you tell me if I'm wrong, because I'm just mm -hmm. trying to listen to what you're telling me. Carrying that wound, mm -hmm. maybe part of it true, uh, we don't know all these years later, your dad's passed away, so you didn't get a chance mm -hmm. to talk to you as frankly as your mom did, but uh, that we know of. But having said that, carrying that wound forward, you, in that lens that you've talked about, you interpreted that um, having, having that uh, uh, physical contact was related to the emotion of totally. feeling loved. And, and so that, if you, that, that, how did that characterize how you went forward and perceived yourself? I, I was really insecure. I mean, I had no identity. Um, you know, my dad was a perfectionist. He, he was great at everything that he did. I wanted to please my dad. I wanted him to respect me and, and be proud of me. And so I became a perfectionist and I could never measure up. Mm -hmm. You know, so it was a constant life of feeling like I failed, right? Like I was a, an athlete very young. I did professional things very young and I was very good at it. But because I wasn't the best, it wasn't good enough. So the whole lack of self-esteem and insecurity just compounded upon itself. So it really and, sounds like it was an avalanche in that, mm -hmm. in that every good thing you did wasn't, wasn't enough for you to feel loved and every bad thing you did reinforced your idea, not bad thing you did, but everything where you didn't think you measured up reinforced the wound or, or, or image of yourself you had. It was ultimate failure all oh, the time, Tom. What a right? circular thing. Ultimate failure. Even when I had those moments of feeling um, accepted, it was brief, right? And then afterwards, I, I got to think that I knew it was wrong. I knew it was wrong being intimate with my brother, but for that moment, I felt accepted because the rest of my life was failure. Somehow. I never knew that before just now, just so you know. It's tough to, thank you very much. And it's really tough to fill those wounds with, stuff, you know, yeah. even with other people, right? Right. Filling those wounds with other people. Did you ever have an experience where you were trying to fill, and you kind of talked about it now, but it's kind of leading to where, where I think we're going, the Holy Spirit's sending us. Were you trying to fill that wound with other people as you got older into the dating years? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I would do whatever it took in order to feel accepted with a group. And it was never genuine. I mean, I would walk into the room and they'd stop talking because they were talking about me before I got there. I knew all of the behind the scenes stuff that was going on, but at least it appeared to outsiders that I fit in. And so I would be do and say whatever you wanted me to do. And that included having sex early in life having intercourse early, early in life, because prior experiences didn't include that, but it was still inappropriate contact. Doesn't it seem, uh, if you don't mind me commenting mm -hmm. on it, because I'm, I'm putting myself in, in your shoes, and we all have, an, and I don't think I'm, I'm generalizing too much to say, many of us have some of the same feelings, that we're not accepted unless we're accepted by other people, that we're not fulfilled unless we're fulfilled by other people's mm -hmm. ideas of us. And, 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 and uh, for me, that invokes in me memories that make me think that that was a very lonely time. It was lonely, but what you just described so eloquently is codependency. 
I was a raging codependent. I found my value and worth from people outside me, not from within me. You know, and how many of us really struggle with that? You know, I don't know that I've ever met anybody, a woman, I'm going to say a woman. I'm not leaving you out, guys, but I haven't had enough contact with guys. But I don't know that I've ever met anybody that's not codependent. In some way. In some way. Seeking to have, seeking to have fulfillment with someone else's opinion. Exactly. Or trying of being unwhole until somebody else affirms you. Or trying to change my conduct to make your mood change, right? There's different ways of being codependent. It could be a, uh, somebody that wants to fix somebody else, somebody that um, needs the approval and the acceptance and the intentions of somebody outside themselves in order to feel good about themselves, or um, you know, reversed role playing, mm-hmm. things like that. So how did this uh, continue to, I mean, I've, I, I'm not trying to, to to parcel out your entire life, but but I was curious about now that you're interacting with other people for their acceptance, and a lot of it was acceptance of, of high school men and stuff like mm-hmm. that. Um, what effect did that have on on you going forward? Well, I went to college, and the first guy that showed interest in me, I had sex with him. You know what I mean? And and this was a time of um, unprotected sex, and I got pregnant. And I really liked this guy, and I wanted to protect that relationship. And so I didn't even consider anything else other than abortion. I wasn't pro-life. I didn't even know what that was. I wasn't religious. I wasn't pro-choice. That wasn't really a big thing back then in 1977. Okay. And um, quite honestly, I was pro-me. It was a selfish decision. And I didn't take enough time to think it through, right? So, so after the abortion, what did... How, how did the process of it make you feel? Were you relieved afterwards? Absolutely. Did you, did, did you feel like my, my life is ahead of me afterwards? Was, what, what, what was going on with you then? Um, I did for a moment. I was totally relieved afterwards. It was like a problem was solved. I was you mean back like the in- weekend or a few days after or for, or for years? I'm just curious about how long was this period um, of, 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 of uh, I fixed a problem? Coming. That's a good question. Let me think back on that. So immediate relief. I had it on Friday, was back in class on Monday, acted like nothing had ever happened. And this is in college, I think. In college, yes. And it was about six months later. I, as I said before, I was trying to protect the relationship because my parents wouldn't have approved of it. Um, about six months later, they found out about it. And so all my fears materialized. So, so if, I'm, I'm, um, if I'm listening to you right, some of the fears about was about your life, about what was going to happen if you had a child, what was going to happen to your relationship that you were involved with with a man at the time, but then also just the stigma of, the, of society at that time of having a child out of wedlock because you weren't married at the time, and then also uh, uh, the the uh, how that would be interpreted by your family was a big one. Yeah, I I think I gave very little thought to what life would be like if I had a child. I honestly didn't even consider that. Um, and I didn't really even think of what life would be like if my parents found out about the relationship. You know, I mean, this was this was a decision that was grounded in fear that was made very quickly. There was nobody to counsel me when I went and had my um, urine test done and to find out I was pregnant. I said, I can't have this baby. And the nurse just gave me a card to an abortion clinic. There was no, no counseling, no ultrasounds, nothing like that. So um, 
and I can be pretty intimidating. <laughs> At least back then I could be pretty intimidating. So the father of the baby didn't question it. He just said, okay, whatever you want. And my roommate said, here's the money. You know, like I, I was like, I was like walled off. So, so it sounds like even the people around you, not only your intent, but the people around you wanted to, to act like this unplanned pregnancy was, was something to be taken care of. Like you, like you take some NyQuil and wake up the next morning. Correct. And, and uh, it really, uh, I, I hear that it really wasn't like that for you. Well, I thought it was. I mean, for many years, I thought it was no big deal until um, I couldn't have kids. And then, that, then the reality of what I had done, that perhaps I had taken the life of the only child I was ever going to have, that kind of um, stirred the pot up and um, made me really regret the decision but not know how to process through that. So I was married now at the time and we tried to adopt and that fell through too. And that was like really like a nail in the coffin for me because now all hope was lost. Well, we're going to get back to that hope in just a couple okay. minutes. We're going to take a break now for a couple moments. And uh, when we come back, I really want to hear uh, your story as it unfolds because I think we're getting ready to see that hope that was still mm -hmm. sparked alive in you. And I can't wait for that. Thank you. Thank you very much. This is St. Joseph's you. Evangelization Network, and we'll be back in a couple moments. Thank you, and and we're back, and and it's and it's really a pleasure being with you here today. You know, we're we're we're, Karen, we're I'm here with pronounce your last name again. Karen Barbido. Barbido, thank you very much. I You're I welcome. should be very sensitive to somebody who who has a name that I can't pronounce because Berg sounds you know, like <laughs> like you had a bad meal. But having said that, uh, we were we were talking before we took a short break, at, and and we were talking about about how early wounds in your life have propelled you to want to seek a, a, a affirmation from other people. You use the term dependent or codependent, mm -hmm. and, uh, uh, and that's a word that gets thrown around, around a lot. But as we, as we discovered for you, it just meant that, that outside of yourself, you needed affirmation. Right. And you look for that in a number of different ways. Mm -hmm. and, and if I heard you correctly, part of those ways was affirmation from men because of, of your relationship, your perceived relationship with your dad. Mm -hmm. And that was affirmed. Mm -hmm. And, and your, your wound that you'd had as a young person kind of, kind of self-perpetuated itself mm -hmm. by everything that was a downer in your life. It reaffirmed that negative opinion of yourself. Absolutely. And, I, and, and if you don't get me wrong, I'm not going to get too deep into this, but you know, can't, I can't help but think as you're telling your story that, that, that God was there, but also so was the evil one, trying mm -hmm. to reinforce and hurt you every chance you could, even if you might have felt it, felt it was self-inflicted. Yeah. Uh, so we were, unfortunately, uh, you, you, you suffered terribly as a teenager. That suffering propelled your decision. And, and, and there's, there's no recrimination in that. What I'm getting at is, is there's no recrimination in taking and making a choice that you felt you had no other choice for. Right. And that was your, and, and your choice was, was for yourself and not for the child because you really felt that, that there wasn't a choice for correct. the child. Is that correct? Am yeah. I hearing you right? Yeah. So, 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 but yet after that, even though you said, hey, I've, I'm back in class from, from Friday to Monday, uh, I, I briefly consulted my, my, uh, my, my significant other at the time, the boyfriend I was with, and, and it, it appeared as though that life could continue if if I went ahead with the abortion. Is that, that, or am I in the right yeah. spot? Yeah, I was deceiving myself, but you're absolutely accurate. 
Okay, okay, and and I'm just I'm just putting it in context because going forward, I'm, I'm I I can feel in our conversation that God was there the whole time, uh, but I but I'm not hearing that, and you weren't either. So so mm-hmm. then take me forward, and as as you progress, you said it really struck me as uh, later in my life, and I don't know how old you were, yeah. but later in my life when I wanted, when, when I was with, with somebody who I wanted to have a family with, and that was just not possible. Correct. So the relationship ended, um, and I um, went to work, you know, got a career, and a man c- kind of liked me, and and I wasn't really in love with him. I, Looking back on it, I can see some violent tendencies, some red flags for that stuff. But I was 26. And at the time, that was kind of late in life to be in a relationship and get married. And so I married him. And we tried to have kids and couldn't. Went to an infertility specialist. And they said, you're never going to have children of your own, which was a blow. And that's when I first, that's the first time that I really thought about my abortion afterwards. Um, now, I was a master of shoving it down. After I went through healing, I remembered things that um, defied how I felt about my abortion and how it impacted me. But um, we tried to adopt. And again, looking back on it, I knew it wasn't going to go through. I just was a control freak. And I wanted what I wanted. You know what I mean? And and so that... Well, you certainly had done well. The, yeah, other, things you right, tried, right. the other things you tried to control, you apparently controlled. The other things you tried to get in, in the world, including athletic uh, uh, accoutrements and, and honors and stuff, you had, you had kind of done. You had managed other relationships in the past because you didn't want to be hurt anymore. Do you right. Mind? Okay. Yeah. And so and so now 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 you had been struck a blow. Yeah. That, that I had no control over. You could not do. Yeah. And so that really was um, devastating for me. I can you know. I still had hope because I hadn't gone through the change of life yet, but I kind of just checked out of the marriage. I started to drink heavily. Um, my husband started to amped up the verbal abuse to physical abuse, and I stayed with him for 11 years. I think I felt like I deserved to be treated that way. Um, again, I was codependent, and I was a little afraid of him. Is that um, kind of, I don't know enough about codependency, but maybe you could help me with your experience a little bit. And what you went through is that the idea that you you deserved it did that relate back to some of the earlier wounds you had about not feeling loved or lovable? I don't know at the time that I thought that I deserved it, but looking back on it, I think I did feel that way. Um, I would, I yeah, I do feel like I f- I deserve to be treated that way. And of course, I'm not I'm, I'm not going to cast aspersions on you necessarily, but when I'm thinking about this. Um, and, and the experience I've had with other people is that it is kind of a kind of a vicious cycle, right? Because if he's an abuser, uh, and then he, he you accept that abuse or you have that abuse, not that you wanted it. I'm not saying that you invited it. Not in no. But what I'm getting at is 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 uh, in, in my law practice and otherwise, when people are abused and then they forgive him. Yeah, so just to briefly tell you about the cycle of abuse, you know, yeah. there's a there's um, a, um, a build-up phase where a lot of emotional and verbal abuse happens, and then there's the abuse, the physical abuse that happens, and then there's a honeymoon stage. Yeah. You know what I mean? And so um, it the frequency of it and the intensity of it grew over time. I mean, it was 11 years, like I told you. Um, and so my where my codependency reared up is I was trying to manage his his mood. Right. Like I was trying to behave in ways, be forward, be silent, be um, I don't know, just I was modifying my behavior to try to 
change his behavior, and that's really codependent. You know, I'm going to be honest with you here, and people listening, maybe there's people out there that have been in, or are in abusive relationships. You know, when it got to the end, I started to become him. So I started to provoke his physical assault on me because that honeymoon stage would start again, right? Oh. And so, like, when I when it got to the point where I thought it was going to escalate, I would yeah. I would say like, "Come on, big man, you want to oh. hit me, right? Don't you want to hit me?" And then he would, and it would be over because oh. he would feel all this remorse, right? And then he'd be good for a while. That's when I left him. Was okay. when I was becoming him. Yeah, I just could not. I couldn't live with myself. Well, if I let was, that continue. At, at this point, since it's, a, since it's a very difficult point in your life and you left him, all along, were people, did anybody know about it or was that part of the secret you both hid? Well, I had started going to church. We both had started going to church at that time, a Baptist church right down the lo- road. And um, I had accepted Jesus as my Savior. I don't know if it was real because I backslid for so many years in my drug addiction and stuff. Um, I just know that I'm saved today because of my rededication to him. But I, I, we separated a couple times, and I met with our pastor and his wife. You know, we tried reconciliation a few times. And really, I, I didn't want to fail again. I was married. I was starting to understand the Bible, the biblical reasons for divorce, um, at least in my Protestant upbringing. Um, And I didn't feel like I had biblical grounds, and I didn't want to fail again. Mm -hmm. And so it wasn't until my pastor, after the when he just Rich just wouldn't stop, that he said, "You have grounds." He's he's abandoned this relationship, and I couldn't leave until I heard that. Well, I certainly praise God for, for, for the permission you sought. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and uh, I would also say to other people who are out there in the same situation uh, that finding somebody of faith is very important. Mm-hmm. And seeking permission is nice. But we have to recognize that we're beloved children of God. Okay, I have four sisters, and I, and I mm-hmm. can't tell you uh, how, uh, how, how my heart would hurt if I heard that story of one of them and they did not come and talk to me about yeah. about that safety valve so to speak so you had a safety valve yeah nobody else in my life knew my parents yeah. didn't know or anything yeah. like that and that's part of the, that's part of the cloak right with a right. cloaking device we put on it because we don't anticipate that they would understand or receive you properly right so um uh but the abortions way 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 past you. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're you're still living a life of somewhat codependent. But mm-hmm. praise be to God that you you've been brought out of that relationship, and now everything's hunky dory. No, now I no, got, now I got to no. do it. Oh, Karen, tell me it ain't so. <laughs> I tell got tell me that all of a sudden there was a bolt of lightning and the no. Red Sea part. We're gonna get and, to that. We're gonna get to that. Okay, though. yeah. So okay. I, I went to a worse relationship where I was introduced to crack cocaine, and instead of leave the guy, still codependent, instead of having him leave me because I wouldn't get high with him, I just got high with him, and that was just took me down a road of, um, I mean, just debaseness I was it was just it was debase um, but here's where the good part comes in so um, I'm and this went on for a few months? four years four years I was oh a, a crackhead okay. for four crack addict okay. for four years um, he was um, having an affair with a woman that we used to get high with and you know people knew at that time not to come to my house because I'm not answering the door because the police are looking for me or what have you right and when you're high you're kind of a little paranoid and that's just not something that you do 
Um, and so there was about 10 o'clock. I don't remember why I wasn't high because I was usually pretty high every day until I passed out. And I opened the door and it was the girl that my supposed boyfriend was cheating on me with. And I can remember my hand on the door shaking because every fleshly thing in me wanted to slam it in her face. I, I can't even see her because I'm so angry and, and just, I just couldn't believe that she was there. I told her she wasn't welcome at my house. My hand's shaking and so my vision comes up and I look at her and I can see that she's got a bruise on her face, that her lip is bleeding and that her boyfriend had abused her. And I lived through that for 11 years and it was only the Holy Spirit and God himself whoever had me open up that door and invite her in. And in that moment, that was when I knew that there was still something in me worth saving. Oh, praise be to God for that. You mm -hmm. know, that, that, so, so, so um, uh, that, although I don't believe in a lot of coincidences, that was not a coincidence. Not at all. Okay, you didn't invite her. There was no reason for her to be there. No. The, God, the, the, the God most high in our Lord Jesus Christ drew her to your house. Can you imagine what she was thinking? She had to have known that you knew about her relationship with you. Yeah, I didn't boyfriend. really think about her. Think about, I, I didn't yeah, really think, think about, about that. about what yeah. she was thinking and mm -hmm. how she was led to your door. And we do have these, mm. these points of encounter where we get to be a savior for somebody. We yeah. get to be Christ to somebody else. You invited her in to that sacred space between you two, to that special place where you could say, "I, my heart is with you." Yeah. Where just a couple minutes before that, you you not only did you want to give her more than your heart, you wanted to give her your fist or whatever exactly. else you could find if there was a you know yeah. maybe a baseball bat. That so, wasn't the only time God showed up though. Uh -huh. When I still I still yeah. didn't really know if I had a relationship with him. It was um, it was now I'm like going to go to prison for seven years, uh -huh. and um, so, so I so just to fast forward, something's gone on with the law. You could obviously this type of behavior can't go unnoticed for long. You, right. The nature of it is to get more more severe in the addiction. The nature of it is to is to do whatever it takes to manage that addiction, exactly. and that usually falls into criminal behavior because you just can't get enough money in a job, nor can you keep a job. And so this got to you to a spot where, where you were, you were, you were facing the possibility of long-term incarceration. Exactly. And so what do I do as an addict? I take $1,000, I don't know how I had it, and I bought a whole bunch of dope. And over the weekend, I just got crazy high. I knew I needed to be in detox on Monday and I wouldn't get violated. So I, I mean, I had like, crack psychosis that is a thing where you start to hallucinate and uh -huh. like imagine things and it was crazy um and so it's sunday night i still have a pile of dope and um it was about 11 o'clock and i called the rehab and they said we're all full up call back later so i went back to get high and it was now like one o'clock in the morning and i heard a voice that said call now and i'm like i'm thinking there's somebody in my apartment you know like because i didn't <laughs> It was, it was the craziest thing, right? And, and don't get me wrong, I'm, I'm, I'm making a little joke out of it because you're laughing, but I, it wasn't like the TV had, you know, buy this. Oh, no, you didn't have Ronco a something. It would call now. It was like. No, you don't have a TV on when you're getting high on crack okay. because the sound is so amplified. Oh, okay. So, sorry, like your senses are so amplified. So, so, so. this was an, ex, an exterior and an interior voice. 
Exactly. Yeah, I thought there was somebody in my apartment. I oh, opened wow. the door, looked out in the hallway. There was wow. nobody there. So I went back to get high. Now it's about 3 o'clock and I'm starting to worry, oh. right? And I hear another voice that's a little louder. It says, call now. And I just ignored it. I figured I was just hallucinating. Half hour later, it was like a thunderclap. Call now. I called the rehab and they had a bed. They oh, said I had an hour to wow. get there. And did you go? I did. It was the last rehab I was ever in. Oh wow! So, so now that now with the with the the advantage of of retrospect, um, I can supposition about what that is. But in your heart now, who was talking to you? God. There's I mean, no, I just wanted you to say it. There's I mean, no doubt. We kind of all sat here and kind of thought the same thing. God, that, Holy Spirit, that, Jesus. You know, I mean, they're all other one. Other people might think, well, that was just uh, your 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 inner soul crying out to help you or whatever. But it it wasn't. It wasn't a voice that was necessarily yours. It was not mine. And let me tell you, at that time, I had no self-control. So I never would have operated in the way of inviting somebody in who I hated or like um, taking action on a voice that I can't identify where it's coming from. So and even if you even your lack of self-control meant that if you have thought that thought yourself, you would have discarded it anyway. It Absolutely. Had, it had to come in the way it came. It did. Oh, praise be to God for that. Yes. And, and what a what a great um, what a great um, uh, point to make here, if you don't mind, because because you weren't doing anything that if we had a chart here. And we said, let's name all the great things that Karen was doing that God would be happy about. There wouldn't be many things on this, this piece of paper if we had a piece of paper here. Up right? until that, those two encounters with right, God? Right. None. Okay. And so, and so you didn't have to. Isn't it interesting looking back? You were earning your, you're earning your love of your father and couldn't earn it. Earning the love of other people and couldn't earn it. Being told all the time that you were not good enough and cycling around, and yet the Most High God thought you were way good enough. You're going to make me cry because it's no, so I didn't true. Want to do that, but I, I mean, the Most High God thinks of us so much like that. One, uh, uh, Saint Augustine said, "God loves each of us as though there was only one of us to love." And at that moment, you were the only one in God's mind. God loved me through my mess. In spite of myself. So, so just, just so I know, I, if I get into a mess like this again, what should I do? If I got into a mess like that, what should I do? What would you, what would you tell uh, 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 my sister who's your age? I would say um, whether you believe in God or not, whether you grew up in a Christian home, um, my experience is that Jesus and God and the Holy Spirit are real, that they are with us, whether we know that or not, and to be open to listening for those kinds of things, those opportunities where you react or act in a, a way counter to how you ever would before, where something that is positive is spoken into you that you never would have thought before because you thought your life was hopeless and there was no hope, listen to it. And that's what you did. You that's what to I it. did. And, and your ability to respond to that was, was, if I might add, was not totally yourself either. You got the courage to respond to it, to pick up the phone and make that, make that phone mm -hmm. call and then to act on it, okay? Mm -hmm. So when you cooperated and co-partnered is the way I'm putting it, 
with God, then God took you to rehab, and then you said that was your last rehab. It was. Praise be to God for that. How long were you in the rehab? Um, well, detox is like three days, uh-huh. inpatient is like 30 days. Well, so let me just tell you about that a little bit. Yeah. Um, insurance will only cover three days in detox, okay? So my three days were up, and they were going to make me leave, and there was no inpatient ready for me at the time. This is how desperate I was to get clean. I said, I'm not leaving. I'm not leaving. Call the police, do what you ever do. I'd rather go to jail than go back out on the street and get high again. I'm not leaving. And they said, well, you have to leave. The insurance won't pay for it. And I said, well, tell me what I got to do. And they said, well, are you feeling depressed or anything like that? And I said, yeah, that's it. I said, okay, so uh, we're going to have to hold you over until Monday. That's called a leading question exactly. in the courtroom, right? I'm, you're, we're going to have to hold you over until Monday to see a psychiatrist. So I saw the psychiatrist. They put me on some anti-depression medication, and they got me into an inpatient. Same thing happened at the end of the 28 days of inpatient. Right. We don't have a halfway house for you to go to. I'm not leaving. Call the police. Do what you ever want to do. I mean, I don't care. I'm not leaving. So source it out. I don't care where I have to go. I'm going to. I'm not leaving here until I have somewhere else to go. So they got me into a halfway house. They probably kept me there a few more days. And it was in the halfway house where everything changed for me. When you say everything changed, uh, obviously you were wanting it to change by Mm -hmm. now, which is really, thank you, Lord, for that that unction that you received from the Holy Spirit. And you you, uh, obviously knew about God, and so you'd had a chance to reflect while you were in rehab Mm -hmm. about this voice you had heard, Mm -hmm. about this path that you are now on. And, of course, that voice that got you there was also, if if you don't mind me saying, a little bit of the courage that you got to say, I'm not leaving. Because yeah. that was God's will. Yeah. So you were operating within God's will. Yeah. You, that's astounding to me. It is, because I don't know that anybody's ever done that before. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, I don't, t- send me to jail. I'd rather go there than be on the street. Yeah. Right? So um, two things happened in the halfway house. One, I recognized that I really hated myself, that I've never had an identity in my whole life. And so I wanted to eliminate all the things that I disliked about myself and replace them with things that were really good and of good character and of good quality and good principle and things that I wouldn't compromise on. And I didn't know where to go except for the Bible. And so that's what I did. I hung pieces of paper all over my room, put things that I hated about myself. Every day would write down scripture and I would read it all the time. I called it Bible boot camp. Oh, okay. Because I really didn't study the Bible before then. Spent a lot of time in Proverbs. So uh, Proverbs is great. (laughs) Proverbs is great, right? And uh, 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 if I'd have known that before we came in, I'd have grabbed some Proverbs for you. But (laughs) you might be able to help me with that too. So, uh, so, so. You're writing down things. I, I really love to get into the process because I, I know that, that I would benefit from understanding your process. The process you went through of, you know, writing down things you didn't like about yourself, okay? And I, for, I wrote down what Scripture said about that. So I used, is it a, called it a concordance where you uh-huh. look up a word sure. and it tells you the Scriptures? Well, uh-huh. so anything that talked about changing that character flaw in you is what I was interested in. I didn't want to just, I just want to read scriptures on um, just, you know, that what comes out of your mouth is not right. I wanted to know how does what comes out of my mouth affect me and others around me, right? So I just added to it every day. I was in the halfway house for nine months and, and after, you know, I spent a lot of time. I looked at it every day. I just was really spending a lot of time in God, trying to develop a relationship with him, surrendering things to him as they fell off. But then I, I couldn't, that wasn't enough. I had to find out what kind of woman God wanted me to be. Because oh, yeah. I didn't know how to be a woman of God. Yeah. 
And so then I started studying the women in the Bible. And um, I, I interrupt I, you just a little bit. While you were doing this thing and looking in the Bible and saying, here's the negative things and, and, and what does God say about making that positive or whatever, as you studied that, how did that affect your self-esteem and how you felt about who you were to God? Completely changed it. I mean, I was living a life that I could be proud of now. You know what I mean? And, and I didn't have to find my value outside of myself that I knew who I was as a child of God. I didn't, I mean, if I had nobody in my life, I have God, you know, and that's sufficient for me. Well, that's, that's astounding for me to hear that because if I just got out the lens, we talked about a different mm-hmm. lens, and we're going to get to that in two seconds, but if I just got out the lens of the world and said, how's the world looking at this? Well, this lady's in her 40s. She has no 401k. She doesn't, as far as we can tell, own a house. She's hocked everything she owns in order to have nothing in the world except drugs, and now that's gone. Mm -hmm. She doesn't have a relationship with anybody. If I was just using the world's definition of success, no offense, Karen, you weren't on the top. You you weren't up there very high. Amen. So so when when I'm listening to you, if I use the lens of the world, you'd say... She's not a whole lot different than she was just, you know, a few months before, but you didn't look at it with the lens of the world, did you? That lens that you had earlier where I had to perform so that, if I don't, you tell me if I'm wrong, I had to perform for somebody's love. I, I, I wasn't loved by God or anybody else unless I did certain things, like I was the best daughter I could be, or I, mm-hmm. I was the best friend I could be, or I, I, got, I got party stuff for my friends or whatever, or I made sure that the, the man in my life was, was, was copacetic all the time, even if it meant walking on eggshells. You didn't need that anymore. Well, it, it was like a perfect storm, you know, it was a perfect storm of developing a relationship of God, knowing that I wasn't the person that I was several months earlier, um, like, starting to like who I was as a person and um, not having how I lived previously define who I am today. Oh, what a beautiful insight. And you learn that, you learn that in like AA and in the rooms, yeah. you know, that what you did is not who you are. Oh, I wish so many other people... Uh, not without having AA problems, but would know that that they ha- don't have to be defined by that. Let me share with you a friend of mine who does spiritual direction has this on his wall, and he says he says, "By the grace of God, I'm not the person today I was yesterday, and I will not be the person today. No, I won't be the person tomorrow. The, the person I am Amen. now. Isn't that great to yeah. know that? Uh, not long ago, just to share with you, someone gave me a wristband which I just got a, a, about two weeks ago. It was somebody on the street that I was helping." And they, they gave me this, and it says, God can move me past my mind's limits. Mm. Do you feel like you were moved past your mind's limits? Past how, your own, how, how you thought of yourself? Yeah, yeah, not only how I thought of myself, but how I thought of myself in the world. Uh-huh. Right? Like, I mean, uh-huh. my, whole, my whole mindset shifted when I got clean and sober. I was climbing the corporate ladder. I was very successful. It was all about money. You know, and I, and during my uh, addiction, I became very familiar with the homeless population and the drug world. And, and so my, what I was passionate about was no longer money, but it was about people. Yeah. Well, here's the thing that I I don't want to leave alone because I'm fascinated by it because because I think there's a great, great uh, understanding that I can get from this. Once you discovered that you were a beloved child of God, once you discovered who you were to God, 
you started to discover more who God was to you. Mm-hmm. But, but then you said, I wanted to define myself by other women in the Bible. I did. Can you spend a couple minutes on that? Because I think that's very ins- in- inspirational. Well, I mean, I was not an obedient person growing up. I think of Mary, you know, being visited by an angel, I think, and being told that she's going to, without having any kind of sexual relations, have a child that's going to be the son of God, you know, and like she just said yes. She was obedient, you know, like, you know, know, and so like, I mean, just those kinds of things um, that you pick up, like laboring with our hands, being a supporter to our husbands, you know, I mean, there's so much that I, I didn't know before. And um, so let me just clarify something, though, you know, I, I said earlier that I, it will be sufficient, God will be sufficient for me if I had nobody else in my life. I still struggle with that. I, that's an idea that I would like to have be firmly in my core, you know, but I mean, I will struggle when my mom dies, you know what I mean? It will take me a moment, and, and if I lost everything, it would be a struggle for me, but I would hope that my faith is grounded enough that I could take that hurt and pain and still keep my eyes fixed on Him. Do you know what I mean? Like... I, I, I hear what you're saying, and if you don't mind me interjecting something at this point, because I, I was at a conference not long ago, and a, and a, and a very well-known Catholic speaker was there, and he said, he said, we have faith and we walk with God, not because things will be great in our lives, but because we'll be so strong. Mm-hmm. The things that hurt us in our lives don't hurt us as much. Yeah. So I can see that in you, that you, you say, I know who I am to God, a beloved daughter, mm-hmm. and since I'm beloved by somebody who will never fail me, I will I, I will endure what comes. Absolutely. Does that make sense? Yes, and I, I believe that. I can see that in you, and that's mm-hmm. great. So so now, uh, as, as we've been, been, been talking about this, you know, I just got you out of rehab. You know, and that was nine months. And so I want to talk for just a couple seconds here. You get out of rehab, that's a support system, an enclosed support system. You get out of that. Going forward, would you please tell me the ways that you, you, because it is a battle. We're in the church militant. I'd be happy to tell you about it. Tell me about the ways that that the evil one's talking to you, still even now, and trying to lure you back into that codependency idea and how you're fighting that. Um, can I get to that in a minute? Because oh, yeah. I want to tell you the other thing that happened yeah. in, in um, at the halfway house. So I went, put myself in Bible boot camp, and I told my house manager that I wanted to go back to college in my 40s for social work. And so she said, "Okay, you got two months to 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 register, you know, to apply." And so I went to a Christian college. I'm in my 40s. These kids look like they're 15, and I couldn't even get out of my car the first time I went there because I was so terrified. Like, I haven't been in school forever. I'm not going to know how to study. I'm going to fail. What are they going to think about me if they find out about my past? The evil one was talking all this nonsense in my head. So I went back and I told her I couldn't get out of my car. And she goes, Karen, if you don't apply, apply, I'm kicking you out of here. And I said, you can't do that. She goes, I can do whatever I want. (laughs) Right? And so You didn't have the keys. I did. And so I applied and I went back to college for social work. And so just all of that... 
helped. Um, so I went from a halfway house. So I was in detox, inpatient, a halfway house. I went to supportive living where I lived with another person, but we were held to weekly accountability. I did that for, I'm still in college for a couple of years. I got out, I didn't graduate. I was two classes short, but I got sick. And then I went to independent housing where I had a home of my own that was paid for through Medicaid. And so I put myself in an accountable situation where at any moment someone could come in and check my house, see if I had anybody living with me, if there was any paraphernalia, alcohol, whatever, and I would be kicked out. And you knew that you needed that. In your life, you, at that point, you knew you I needed, needed that. that. What a wonderfully humbling experience It was. That. And to tell you, Tom, when the five years was up and they said, you're done, you can go, I was still afraid. Yeah. yeah. I was still afraid. But you weren't alone anymore. No. Who was walking with you? God was, yeah. you know, and he was encouraging me along the way. You know, yeah. I mean, every every time I doubted or every time um, something wasn't going the way that I wanted to, like I said, I didn't graduate because I got sick and was in and out of the hospital several times over about 18 months. You know, that was a huge disappointment for me. Um, and by the time I was well enough to get a job, I needed to have a job because yeah. I didn't have income. Um, I don't think that it matters given what I do today, um, but... I mean, I from that point on and being able to stay clean and sober for 20 years, I know I didn't do it alone. And I all I did, the part that I played in it, was to put one foot in front of the other and to do the next right thing and to be brutally honest with myself. When the, my deceitful thoughts would come through, I needed to recognize them for what they were, who they were from, and I needed to keep every, keep, capture every thought captive. And I look back over my shoulder for those 20 years. I don't know how I got from there to sitting here, but I know God brought me here. Okay. God brought you here. Mm -hmm. And isn't it, isn't it, you know, it's not like you're a slave to the Lord. No. It's, it, you're, you're, the Lord is loving you into where you're here with me today. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not a, a fanatic. <laughs> I'm not like a Jesus fanatic, or you know, like. Uh, oh, I'm sorry. I am. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I love the Lord, but uh, you know, I mean, it's kind of personal. You know, my relationship with Him is very personal. Well, I th I'm so glad you you were willing to share it with me. Yeah. You know, because because I everybody has some of what's gone on in your story. You know, mm. trying to define who they are, and it was so great that you went to the Bible to try to find out who yeah. you are. Yeah. You know, uh, gee, that's a, that's a, this thick, and I'm not going to read it, and it's going to tell me how bad I am because it said how the Israelites turned away from God. All that. And there's so much life and love that comes oh, out man, of that. Oh, man, I love huh? the Bible. It's a great storybook. Isn't that? It is a great storybook. So yeah. you have a story of your life, too. We talked a little bit before we got together here, your personal parable, what Christ is telling into the world through you. And so what are you doing now? Um. I work for an organization called Support After Abortion, something that I have a personal experience with, something that I struggled with and made really bad decisions behind for decades. And so I now work with men and women who have had abortions. Uh, we really don't discuss politics. We really don't discuss religion. We're not even really talking about the decision because it's already been made. I just want to help hurting people because I know there's an answer. I know that there's healing after abortion is possible. I know that people deserve it. I know how to get them from to sort through their emotions, to grieve the loss because it's really about grief and to find closure. And that only happens. We don't have to talk about God, but God shows up every time we have a celebration of life. And that 12 inch 
um, track or travel, whatever you want to call it, from your head to your heart happens. And when that happens, when what you're thinking becomes part of who you are, that transformation, you can't go back from that. Yeah. There's no going back. Well, certainly your worth, the way you've talked, is found in God. Mm -hmm. and, and, and so if somebody was out there and they said, you know, yeah, 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 that's really fine. Uh, so thank you so, so much. I'm glad it worked for you. You're good. You know, obviously God thought you were good enough to speak to you in the very mm -hmm. darkness at 3 a.m. in the morning. But I've got this to deal with, or I've got that to deal with, or whatever. What would you tell somebody like that? Well, I want to listen to what it is that they're dealing with, you know, to find out um, what they feel they need. We never want to make assumptions for someone, and we never want them to feel something that they don't currently feel. Um, I would just have a conversation with them, like, tell me what's going on. You know, that must be really hard for you to deal with this. What would it look like if you didn't have that obstacle in your life mm -hmm. anymore? Just mm -hmm. kind of open-ended questions, what and how questions, um, just to draw them out. You know, people really want to talk about what's going on with them as long as they feel safe and they don't feel like they're going to be judged. How do you create that safe environment when you're talking to somebody? I don't know. Um, I mean, part people, of it is your just, demeanor and your openness, right? But I get, I get, I get, I don't know. I mean, I just, I, it's my calling. I just really believe that this is my calling. It seems like when I have a client sitting in front of me, I'm just super present. You know, I'm thinking only about them. I remember what it was like for me, and I just... I don't know. I guess it's how I speak. I don't know. Lisa could answer that better than me. <laughs> well, well if, if you don't mind me putting a, a, a biblical yeah. phrase on it, you know, and, and uh, uh, I'm, I'm trying to remember exactly where it is, but I, but I think it's in Galatians too, where where uh, Paul is 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 trying to talk about his life, and he said, you know, it's it's not I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Mm -hmm. And when I when I if if you don't mind me saying it, and, and, and we've only known each other a, a little while, mm. but but you've been very open with me, right? You've, you've been very accepting to me. And, you, and, and so many things in the world say that we, we shouldn't be open to somebody else. We should be closed off. We should be lonely. And who's, who's trying to segregate us from other people? Who's trying to segregate us from community? Who was trying to segregate you from people who really loved you? Well, it wasn't God. Right. right. So I, I'm going to answer that a different way yeah. as you were talking. You know, I have thought in my life before that you know, modeling my life after Jesus's walk. Um, if I can be the face of Jesus to someone, that's what I want to be. I want to. I want to indulge in conversations like Jesus had conversations with people. Not necessarily pointing out someone's sin, you know, but having that loving, compassionate kind of approach to people. So maybe that's a better way to say it. If uh, we, we haven't talked about the, the effect of, of, of the, uh, the abortion on your boyfriend at the time. Uh, you, obviously, you broke up at some time, so mm -hmm. there was some effect on, on just what was going on in your relationship. But, but if, if somebody was in that spot, uh, what, how, would you, how would you direct them or help them get help from somebody? Where, where they, would you ask them to go? If they found themselves unexpectedly pregnant? Okay, can I talk to them, the people oh, yeah, that are watching? Absolutely. Okay. I'm not unexpectedly pregnant. <laughs> okay. Um, you know, the things that we have found is that when you're in a crisis, you really don't think things through. And so I would recommend that you find a pregnancy help center, a pastor, somebody that you trust where they can help you to slow the process down. 
you have time. Unless you're way late in your pregnancy, you have time to consider it, right? And I want you to think it through. You know, I want you to make the best decision, the decision that you can live through. Because if you go through with your abortion, there's no going back. You can't fix it. You can heal from it, but you can't fix it. So consider what your reasons are for having an abortion and is there any resources out there that could help you navigate those obstacles? Because I didn't even think about it, right? I just knew what I was going to do and that's why I was going to do it. If your reasons are because you're afraid, I'm going to suggest that you tell somebody that you're pregnant because just speaking out that you're pregnant will take that stigma away from it and that secret away from it and our secrets keep us sick. Oh, the secret. That's the evil one, right? He wants to segregate mm-hmm. us, make everything secret. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you were a part of, uh, of, of a little book. Uh, yeah. what, what's this book going to help somebody with? Man, I'll tell you what, it, it, it has really changed our lives. And I think that it's applicable for any parent today who doesn't want to parent like they were parented. You know what I mean? Understanding how our children perceive our messaging and, you know, generational cycles and patterns of conduct you know you know how it is you know our parents were parented in some way they either parent that same way or they go the opposite direction you know I just want people to be in touch with how it is that they feel about themselves um, being able to replace the lie that they believe about themselves with truth and then choose differently you know and it takes practice to choose differently and you have to fight against that against the loneliness yeah against the isolation yeah yeah so we just think that that book is could be used in any kind of context you know social work mental health residential facilities sex trafficking facilities um prisons and so the the book is uh, unraveled exposing the hidden causes uh of damaging of damaging behaviors unraveled roots yeah yeah that's 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 great um well I can't say what a wonderful time it's been with you. And Thank it's you. inspiring to me. Thank you, to Tom. To know that God loves me even in my darkest spots. Yep. So I, I really appreciate it. And I, and I, I wish a blessing on you. Thank okay. you. Thanks so much. It was great to be here. All right. Thanks a lot. All right. Good afternoon. Howdy. Good to see you. I'm Deacon Tom Burke, and I'm here at St. Joe's Evangelization Network. It's my pleasure to be here with, with Lisa Moreau. Or Lisa Rowe. Rowe. Excuse me. Lisa Rowe. Yes. And Lisa, Lisa, we've just met today yes. uh, in the yes. elevator, actually. That's right. Not here in the studios. But we just met today, and I understand you're the CEO of a of of an organization that helps people. Absolutely. And yes. what's what's that what's that mission? So I serve as the CEO of Support After Abortion and we exist to help end the demand for abortion through healing men and women who've been impacted by abortion. Okay, so so we're not talking about prior to the decision, we're talking about post-abortion realities. I love what you just said because we are actually bringing an innovative understanding to the pro-life movement that says, "Hey, look, We have 50 years of legalized abortion, right? And even though the abortion landscape is changing, we still have four generations, grandparents, mothers, children, then their children, who have experienced abortion. And if if we understood what it took to get inside that family, that pattern of behavior, and break those chains through healing, we would actually end abortion by simply creating a message that you don't, this isn't the answer. There's other ways to, to deal with your dysfunction. So, so what, what do you see as the post-abortion reality? You know, because it, it is mom, 
okay? Mm-hmm. Uh, she, she was a mom, mm-hmm. and now she's not. Right. And there's a post, post-abortion reality for the dad. Mm-hmm. He, he was a dad, and right. now he's not. What's that, what for many people, what do you see as the post-abortion reality? Well, we like to talk about at Support After Abortion that abortion is a symptom like a lot of other human symptoms that we experience that are a result of pain. Divorce, poverty, homelessness, domestic violence, substance abuse, anger, fill in the blank. Uh, we have separated, our culture has separated abortion as this issue and then these issues. And so what we try to help people understand is that there's a symptom, and abortion can be the symptom to much greater roots, right? And so what we help people understand is that abortion is not much different than any of these other dysfunctional patterns of behavior. And so when you think of your family and friends who might have exposed other behaviors, it's very similar, pain, suffering, struggle. The one difference though is because our culture has not given us permission to grieve, it's created this to be a political divide or a religious divide, people then feel silenced in their suffering. So think of that young woman who's experienced sexual abuse. We have come a long way in talking about sexual abuse where she may be able to feel safer to talk about something with so much stigma. Well, how destructive if we don't talk about it. And that, that we are in a place and space right now with abortion that people don't feel safe. I have women tell me often that the pro-choice movement said it should be okay to dismiss all of the pain that you might be experiencing. And you don't feel okay. Right, and the pro-life movement at times has a reputation of saying it's a murder. And so these... So, so no one wants to carry that moniker. Right, and so here we have um, a woman or man who's faced with these two sides, not feeling like they fit anywhere or feel safe enough to land this experience with anyone, and so they push it down, 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 and you know, it doesn't go away. It just stays there and seeps out toxicity. Um, and which, so, which are all different kinds of behaviors, right. depression and anxiety and all kinds of things come Correct. as a result of, of, of a repressed wound, an unhealed wound. You got it. So that, so that wound that causes somebody to, to maybe feel like that's all they can do is an abortion mm-hmm. and they have that, what are those underlying symptoms that, that your organization tries to, to help people with? So prior to an abortion experience, we know that these are wounds that lend themselves to vulnerabilities after an abortion. So if we don't have identity, if we don't have purpose, if we don't know our value, if it was stolen from us as a young child through sexual abuse, whatever other exploitation and just dangerous and dysfunctional behavior, it lends itself to be magnified after abortion. So oftentimes when we don't have a place to deal with these behaviors, we our human nature wants to numb them, right? Oh, wow. And so we go sure. numbing them through drug addiction, oh, yeah. through perfectionism, through codependency, through all sorts of things to just try to deflect that pain because it's so it's so real to us and when we don't have a safe place to, to deal with it, it becomes very, very, we're deficient in how to handle that. So then couple that with an abortion, well now you have an exaggerated response to all those things you were already dealing with. It's like layering of the trauma. What effect does that have on people's self-esteem? Oh, well if they don't have a self-esteem prior and then they experience abortion on top of that, well it just diminishes. Trying to to build that self-esteem back is just all the harder. Sure, it's an unlayering that you need to go through in in the healing process. So so your organization 
kind of has taken a, another look. Not the not the pro-choice idea that you should just get over it because it's a great thing and you're you're free now for mm. some reason, which isn't real freedom. And then the other side that says, well, you're not going to be free because we've labeled you if, if you're if you're pro-life and, and somebody is hateful enough or or selfish enough to, to label somebody as a, as a killer. Yeah, we want to build a bridge, Tom. We want to build a bridge in saying, look, it doesn't matter what your your political perspective is. Let's get above that. And let's uh-huh. remember that on a, the realest surface we are, we are all human beings. And how can I be with you in your pain? No different than the other pains that you've experienced. So rising above you know, your stance and being with one another, you and I are more alike than we are different. Man, woman, but you and I could find a, a similar space and place inside of our hearts where we could connect over pain or hurt or enjoyment or family. And that's what we're trying to help people understand is that have your stance. We're not we're not standing in the way of that, but you're missing the mark by not being a human being first. If I'm wanting to if I've wanted to connect with that person who's had such a terrible thing, man or woman, because mm-hmm. it affects men as well, how 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 do you how does your organization go about helping me do that. Yes, and so we have a four-step process. We've worked with Students for Life. They do this door-knocking program, and they really ask us. They said, we got it. We need this easy because we have five minutes with somebody. And as they were knocking on people's doors, they started to feel really compelled that they didn't have the answer, that the students didn't have the, the capability of when somebody opened up about their abortion experience. What do I do now? Right, and the students were saying, I don't have an abortion experience. I can't sit with them. I can't empathize with them. And I said, you know what, back to that, we're more alike than we are different. So we start with that. We're all more alike than we are different. Um, and, And if we can really sit in that space and understand that we're human beings first, and then once we do that, really look around and try to get curious. What does my language look like around abortion? How do I view this? We all have stereotypes. It's human nature to be open to the fact that you might only have one way of looking at something as it pertains to this topic. And what do people receive from you as they're connecting with you? Are you very judgmental? Are you very condemning? Are you open? Are you? If I'm hearing you right, it Mm -hmm. sounds like a lot of times our language is our way of coping with not having to cope with somebody else's wound and hurt. That could be one of them, yes, okay. absolutely. Okay, so, so the first part that you're talking about, and you said there was four parts. There is four parts. The first mm-hmm. part, how, what, what do you, if you put that in a sentence, how would it go? Uh, assess your stereotypes as it pertains to abortion. Okay, mm-hmm. okay. And that could take a little bit of an eye-opening experience. It is, and it needs to be an, somebody needs to be open to that. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. But if, if I love somebody who's... And, and, and I want a healing in their life, and I really do care about them, I'm willing to go that extra step. Absolutely. Right? So then, that, then, that, then if I got there, and I, and I understand that I'm working on those stereotypes, and I'm trying to transform my mind to be a more loving mind like Christ, mm-hmm. what, what's the next thing I'd have to do? Well, then we encourage you to use best practice language. So now that you've become a soft place to land for someone, you're more compassionate. Oh, I love that, a soft place to land. Yes. Yes. Then somebody might feel safe and say, I don't know why I'm telling you this, but, you know, that abortion conversation you've been having recently, I was one of those people who experienced abortion. And I don't know why I'm telling you my story, but I just feel like I'm supposed to because that happens a lot. Um, and you would say something like, I am so sorry for your loss. So that so so being totally receptive 
not to what they did necessarily, but to who they are. That's right. Oh wow, right. cool! Isn't Absolutely. that isn't that what Christ did? Yes. He he saw the lepers and he put his hand on them, mm -hmm. which was death, by the way. Yeah. He he went ahead and and touched the man's hand on the Sabbath, which meant he'd be ostracized from from the church. He got into their space mm -hmm. and into, if you don't mind me saying, the muck of where they were. Absolutely. Cool. And so. am, I, am I gonna look at myself before I point fingers? God encourages that, right? Oh, yeah. He turned back to the crowd and he said, yeah. what about you, right? Yeah. Stop looking at this one person, what about you? Oh, yeah. And so what are we doing? And what, are, what about us? How, how are we alike creating that safe space? And, and people do feel that, there's a presence there's a connection that comes with that and when they do share their abortion experience we want to stop the noise we want to be a place where we're just making eye contact and creating a space to say I'm so sorry for your loss you may be the first person that has ever validated that experience for them because this isn't a safe conversation culturally now you're creating that and and they they don't even know how to receive that sometimes because nobody else has ever done that for them. And you haven't described their loss because their loss is so personal to them that they just have to take your love when you just say, I'm sorry for your loss. Yeah. Let's take a break for just a minute and we'll come right back because I can't wait to hear what number three and four is. Awesome. Thanks. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you, and we're, we're back again, Lisa. Thank you very much for sure. allowing me to have a break with you. Uh, we were talking about ways that your organization, which is Support After Abortion, mm -hmm. th that organization helps us change our mindset in order to be more receptive. The, with the mindset being changed with totally with the thought of the other, like yes, Jesus, right? Absolutely. We were made others so we could seek each other and seek God, and so he totally thought about the other. And now, now you said, well, that's part of changing our how we think and talk about abortion and, and, and where we come from. And then you talk about being that soft space, that soft landing mm -hmm. for them. And, and that takes a, takes a the, uh, uh, if I don't mind you, me saying that, it takes a sacred heart. Absolutely. It takes a heart of Jesus, mm -hmm. you know, a wounded heart that can go ahead and say, I... I'm wounded with you, even though I didn't experience exactly what you experienced. I will be wounded with you. Absolutely. And then you then you were saying that, and, I, and you had me in suspense because there's two more, right? Yes, so there is. If I if 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 I'm I'm working on my stereotypes because that has to be worked on for a long time, and then I'm really really loving that person exactly where they're at. Mm -hmm. Then what else can I do to help them? So now you've assessed your stereotypes. You've used best practice language. We're going to ask that individual to share their experience with us. Why? Because they likely have shoved this experience or experiences so far down and with that validation of saying, I'm so sorry for your loss, comes an opportunity for them to take it to the next level. And you find that there's a, just by sharing that experience where they're validated that it was a valid human experience that they did, regardless of what their choice was. Do you find that that's healing for them? Absolutely. Anytime I've taken the first step towards healing and saying it out loud to another human being, 
I feel relief immediately. And I feel like I then can, depending on your response or reaction, gives me hope as to where I can go from there. And that process, I'm thinking this number three you're talking about, that wouldn't be a one and done kind of thing, would it? It could be. Uh, oh, really? You know, okay. it just depends on the relationship. This could happen at church after wow. service. It could happen um, in a Bible study. It could happen at a woman's reading group or an event after some kind of thing that you go to. It it could happen anywhere where somebody might come up to you and share and you say, hey, I'm here if you'd like to share your experience So with I don't me. have to be a, a, a clinical psychologist or a sociologist to do this. So I've gotten there, I've listened to them with a heart, actively mm -hmm. listening to them. Absolutely. Then what about number four? We want to refer them for support. You know, if, we're, if we are really truly invested in their journey forward, we never want to leave them where they are. They've just basically tore that Band-Aid off of their experience, and we want to refer them. And so we would encourage folks to follow up and refer them to support after abortion. And really, if you don't mind me saying it, if, if, if I went through number one, two, and three, and I got to number four, and I just left them where they were at, wouldn't I be almost validating the fact that they are alone? Yeah, you would. And, and you'd be opening something and not finishing or offering hope further beyond that conversation. And there is hope further. And there's people on our hope line that are ready to receive their call. And we have groups and a, a whole network of people that are ready to serve them in the way that they want to be served. Well, that's what I want you to help me with now for a couple moments. I've gotten to this spot. I've identified somebody that's way past my pay grade, so to speak, or my, my understanding and my ability to help them. And that's not a bad thing to, to, to realize. Mm -hmm. That's not a bad thing to admit. Absolutely. And I can't be everything to everybody. That's right. And, I, and people are much better than me at a lot of things. Yes, right? and me too. Yeah, okay. Yes, well, yes, yes. yes. Uh, so what, what, would you, what would you have them do? Where can I go? Tell me some resources now. What would I do? Is there an email I should know? Is there something I should know? That's wonderful. So I would encourage them to visit our website, supportafterabortion.com. On our website, we have our phone number. They can call or text any social media platform. They can connect with us. And I'll tell you why it's so important not to have a list of resources. Um, when we came into this work, we learned that there were so many siloed healing opportunities in the abortion healing industry. And they're amazing. Uh, but the thing is, is that we need to find out from our, our friend, our client, whoever it is, what they want. And so support after abortion is owning that space. We have an amazing intake process where once we validated the experience, created a safe space for that individual to talk to us about their experiences, we then refer them based on what they're looking for, for a healing program that matches that. Um, up until this point, it, it, somebody might come to you and say, I need support or I have support. And there was only one way for them to find oh, healing. Okay. And I'm sure you know this with folks that you know, not, every, uh, nobody's, not everybody's like me, not everybody's like you. The way I heal is not the way you heal. And so we wanna make sure that there's a variety of options for the men and women that are reaching out. Uh, otherwise, they might not follow through. I've only got about 30 seconds. Okay. So without telling you a specific story, what has been the, um, the fruit of, of what you're doing? 
What have you seen? I've seen breakthrough, absolute breakthrough. I've seen people that have walked with shame and condemnation for decades free. I've seen women who are escaping those decades of condemnation by reaching out immediately. I've seen men validated in their experiences. Never, ever have they been validated before. I've seen families healed and generations changed because they understand that they now can find hope and healing after abortion. That's such, a, that's such a great message, not just a message for, for uh, uh, people in the abortion industry, and, and we use that term very loosely, but, but also for just people who want to be whole. That's right. That opportunity for wholeness. And I, I want to particularly thank you for the opportunity to understand that, and I can't wait to help somebody be whole. Amen. God bless you. Thank you, Tom. Thank you very much for mm -hmm. being with me today. Yes, thank you. Yeah, nice mm -hmm. meeting you.